We come now to the little book of Zephaniah. I told you at the beginning when we took up Nahum that we were putting together three remarkable little books, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And I'm sure that most of you now agree that the first two books, Nahum and Habakkuk, are unusual books. Well, Zephaniah is not far behind. In fact, it's not behind at all. It's another remarkable book that we've come to. Now, I do not think the little book of Zephaniah will ever take the place of John 3.16 or the gospel of John as number one in Bible popularity. But the contents of this little book have never been familiar. I doubt whether the little book's been read very much. I'm going to ask a question that I asked a long time ago regarding another book, and that is, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on Zephaniah? I dare say that few of you have ever done that. I asked that question several years ago when I was pastor one Sunday morning when I was going to preach on it, and out of a congregation of between 2,500 and 3,000, there were probably two hands that were put up that had heard a sermon on Zephaniah. Now, that's not due to the mediocrity or the inferiority of this little book, I can assure you. But it's been neglected because actually its theme was known, I think it would be appreciated. And that is, it has the same theme as the Gospel of John has. John is called the apostle of love, and he is an apostle of love. But we come to a little book, and he is the prophet of love. Now, it's going to be difficult for you to believe that. It's hard to believe it. But let me give you a verse from that. We're acquainted with John 3.16. How about Zephaniah 3.17? Listen to this. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He'll rejoice over thee with joy. He'll rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. He'll rest in his love. Lovely, isn't it? Well, may I say to you, this little book is a little different, though, than the Gospel of John. This verse I've given you is just like a small island that is sheltered in the midst of a storm-tossed sea. Because much of this little book of Zephaniah seems rather harsh and cruel. It seems like it's fury poured out. And the reason for that is there's just too much judgment that's in this little book here. He begins chapter 3 of Zephaniah with, "'Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city.'" And my, starts out in that vein, and that's not very popular today. Now, how can love be the theme? It's like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. I think I can illustrate this by telling you a detective story, giving you a mystery story. Now, that seems a very peculiar way to begin Zephaniah. Well, let me give you a mystery story here. And it's going to help us understand this little book. Now, I want to brief you here on the very terrifying scene, by the way. 
And we are going to look now at the dark side of love. Now, here is my story. It was late at night in a suburban area of one of our great cities of America. A child lay restless in her bed. A man with a very severe and stern look, he stealthily entered a bedroom, and he softly approached her bed. And the moment the little girl saw him, a terrified look came over her face, and she began to scream. And her mother rushed into the room and went over to her, and the trembling child threw her arms about her. But the man withdrew to the telephone, and he called someone who was evidently an accomplice, and in a very soft voice made some sort of an arrangement. And hastily the man reentered the room. He tore the child from the mother's arms, and he rushed out to a waiting car. And the child was sobbing, and he attempted to stifle her cries. He drove madly down street after street until he finally pulled up before a large, sinister, and foreboding-looking building. All was quiet. The building was partially dark, but there was one room upstairs ablaze with light, and the child was hurriedly taken inside, up to the lighted room, and put into the hands of the man with whom the conversation had been held over the telephone in the hallway. In turn, the child was handed over to another accomplice, and this time it was a woman. And these two took her into an inner room, and the man who had brought her was left outside in the hallway. Inside the room, the man that took her in there, he took a long, sharp, gleaming knife, and he plunged it into the vitals of that little child. And she lay as if she were dead. Now, I wonder what your reaction is at this point. Maybe you're saying, well, I certainly hope they'll catch that criminal who abducted that little child and is responsible for such an awful crime. May I say to you, friends, I have not described to you the depraved and degraded action of a debased mind. I've not taken a chapter out of the life of a man in cell 2455 death row. I haven't told you a story that comes from one of these murder mysteries that we have too much probably on TV today. I have not related to you the sordid and sadistic crime of a psychopathic criminal. On the contrary, I have described to you a tender act of love. In fact, I can think of no more sincere demonstration of love than I've described to you. Now, I'm sure you're amazed when I say that. Now, let me fill in here, and then you'll understand. You see, that little girl had awakened in the night with severe abdominal pains. She had been subject to such attacks. And her parents were watching her very carefully. The doctor had said to do that. And it was actually her father who had rushed into the room. 
And the little girl knew that she might have to make that trip to the hospital, and when the father rushed into the room, she screamed, of course. And he talked to the specialist about it, and when he saw the suffering of the little girl, you see, he went to the telephone, and he called the family physician, and he arranged to meet him at the hospital. And he'd rushed his own little girl down to the hospital, and he handed her over to the family physician. And the doctor had taken her into the operating room with the nurse, and he performed an emergency surgery. Through it all, every move and every act of that father was of tender love, anxious care, and a wise decision. I have described to you the dark side of love, but love nevertheless. Now, the father loved that child just as much on that dark night when he took her to the hospital and delivered her to the surgeon's knife as he did the next week when he brought her flowers and candy. It was just as much a demonstration of deep affection when he delivered her into the hands of the surgeon as it was the next week when he brought her home and delivered her into the arms of her mother. My friend, love places the eternal security and permanent welfare of the object of love above any transitory or temporary comfort or present pleasure down here upon this earth. In other words, love seeks the best interests of the beloved. That's important. That's what this little book of Zephaniah is all about. It's the dark side of love. Now, may I pause just to say this? I have a book entitled The Dark Side of Love, and that's a little book we'll send to you for those of you who are supporting the program. But now let's understand that the notes and outlines, you don't have to send anything to get those because we want everyone to study the Bible. This would be just a supplement for those who believe in this ministry and if they do and want the book, they'd want to have part in supporting it, of course. Now, let me move on here. Now, in our nation today, we have come through a period when the love of God has been exaggerated out of all proportion to the other attributes of our God. And it's been presented in such a way that the love of God is a weakness rather than a strength. It has been presented on the sunny side of the street with nothing of the other side ever mentioned. There is a love of God presented that sounds to me like the doting of grandparents rather than the vital and vigorous concern of a parent for the best interests of the child. The liberal preacher today has chanted like a parrot. He has used shop-worn cliches. He's taken tired adjectives, and he said, God is love. God is love, God is love, until he's made it saccharine sweet, and he is not told about the dark side of the love of God. He has watered love down, making it sickening rather than stimulating, causing it to slop over on every side like a sentimental feeling rather than an abiding concern for the object of love. Now, let me add this. God deals with us according to our need. I want you to notice that there is the dark side of the love of God. The great physician 
will put his child on the operating table, and he'll use the surgeon's knife when he sees a tumor of transgression or a deadly virus sapping our spiritual lives, or when he sees the cancerous growth of sin. He does not hesitate to deal with us severely. We must learn this fact early. He loves us just as much when he's subjecting us to surgery as when he sends us candy and flowers and brings us into the sunshine. And sometimes the great physician will operate without giving us so much as a sedative. But you can always be sure of one thing. When he does this, he'll pour in the balm of Gilead. When he sees that it is best for you and for me to go down through the valley of suffering, that it will be for our eternal welfare, he'll not hesitate to let us go down through the dark valley. Someone has expressed it in these lines. Is there no other way, O God, except through sorrow, pain, and loss, to stamp Christ's likeness on my soul? No other way except the cross? And then a voice stills all my soul, as still the waves of Galilee. Canst thou not bear the furnace, if midst the flames I walk with thee? I bore the cross. I know its weight. I drank the cup I hold for thee. Canst thou not follow where I lead? I'll give thee strength. Lean hard on me. My friend, he loves us most when he's operating on us. That's what we saw, you remember, back in Hebrews 12:6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, he child trains, he disciplines. And there's another figure that the Lord Jesus presented yonder in the upper room, and you will find that in the gospel of John, the gospel of love. John 15, verses 1 and 2. He says, I'm the genuine vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. May I say to you, we must remember that the Father reaches into your life and mine and prunes out that which is not fruit-bearing, and it hurts. But as a Puritan divine once said years ago, the husbandman is never so close to the branch as when he's trimming it. The Father is never more close to you, my friend, than when he's reaching in and taking out of your heart and life those things that offend. It was Spurgeon who noticed a weather vane that a farmer had on his barn. It was an unusual weather vane, for on it the farmer had the words, God is love. And Mr. Spurgeon asked him, he says, Do you mean by this that God's love is as changeable as the wind? The farmer shook his head. No, he said, I do not mean that God's love changes like that. I mean that whichever way the wind blows, God is love. Today it may be the soft wind from the south that he brings to blow across your life, for he loves you. And tomorrow he may let the cold blasts from the north blow over your life. And if he does, 
He still loves you. It has been expressed in a very wonderful poem, and I've used it before. I hesitate to use it again, but I want to bring out this point. God hath not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. Then I lift out the last stanza. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the laborer, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. Beloved, if you are a child of God and you're in a place of suffering, be assured and know that God loves you, regardless of how it may appear. He loves you, and you can't ever change that. And that's what we have now in the little prophecy of Zephaniah. It sets forth the dark side of the love of God. I have a notion that very few of you, when I asked the question a moment ago, had you ever heard a sermon on Zephaniah? Very few of you, I'm sure, would have put up your hand. And since it presents the dark side of God's love, I can well understand how it would be unpopular because it opens with rumblings of judgment, the judgment of God that's coming upon this earth. And you find that as we get into it, this little book. When I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles, it was on Mother's Day. I looked down in the congregation, because that was the day that we recognized mothers, and you could see that many of them were there, and they were dressed a little special for that day. Many of them had on corsages, but one mother that sat out there, she didn't look as happy as the others looked. In fact, there was a note of sorrow on her face, and she had a beautiful corsage on, a beautiful orchid corsage. In fact, the matter is, it was the biggest one I've ever seen. And I knew where it came from. She had a son in the East, and he's a prominent businessman. He's high up in government circles, as well as the business world. But he's not a Christian. In fact, he turns a deaf ear to his mother's pleading and she prays for him constantly. She's asked others to pray for him. And one Sunday morning after a message, with tears streaming down her cheeks, she said to me, Oh, Dr. McGee, I pray that God will save my boy. I pray that he'll save him, even if he has to put him on a sick bed. And then almost Fiercely, she said, even if he has to kill him, I pray that God will save him before it's too late. And I say to you, that's a very strong statement to make. And suppose that there had been listening a private detective or a detective from the police department. Would he have arrested her for making that kind of a statement? No, he could not. He could not arrest her at all. Why? Well, because that wasn't a threat. 
That was actually a statement of love. It was because she loved that boy that she was actually willing to give him up and let him go down through the doorway of death if it meant the salvation of his soul. May I say to you that the little book of Zephaniah presents this aspect of God. And actually, I think that we need to recognize, as I called attention, that our idea today of God is he's sort of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that he is a God of love, but there's another nature to him. He's almost a different person. He's a God of judgment. But there is all the way through this little book, and this is a book of judgment, and you won't find judgment enunciated in a more harsh manner than you find in this book here. There actually are two thoughts that stand out in this brief book. The first one is this. The day of the Lord occurs seven times in this book. The fact of the matter is, that's the theme of the book, the day of the Lord. Obadiah and Joel, they were the first of the writing prophets to use this phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, Zephaniah is the last one to use it. And as I say, he uses it more than any other prophet. In fact, it occurs seven times in this little book, and there are other references to it, but not that particular phrase, by the way. And it has a particular application to the great tribulation period, which precedes the kingdom, but it includes the kingdom. In fact, the great tribulation is ended by the coming of Christ personally to the earth to establish the millennial kingdom. And all of that is included in the day of the Lord. And we need, therefore, to keep that before us in this little book, because the emphasis here is upon judgment. You see that first two prophets, Joel and Obadiah, Joel, for instance, you remember his book opens with that great locust plague, and he likens that locust plague to the day of the Lord that is coming in the future. And he enlarges upon it. He says the day of the Lord is not light, it's darkness. That's the way God's day begins. In fact, that's the way God writes salvation. It's on the black background of man's sin that God writes in letters of light the wonderful gospel story for you and for me. Now, Zephaniah, he is the last of the writing prophets that uses this expression, the day of the Lord. In other words, the prophets begin with that expression. All of them refer to it. And now you come here to Zephaniah, and he prophesied during the days of Josiah. And that was the period that actually was the last spiritual movement that took place in the kingdom. There was a revival during that time. It wasn't a great one. It didn't last long. But there was a revival. And this man had known something of the reign, actually, of Ammon, an evil king, and the reign of Manasseh, a 
terrible king, and he knew the reign of these men. And this man sees that judgment is coming upon his nation and upon his people. And his message sounds very harsh, by the way. Now, the second thought that's in this little book, and it's the word jealousy, it only occurs twice. And jealousy, as it refers to God, is on a little different level and different plane than it is for you and me. In our jealousy, we seek actually to do evil. But God is jealous of those that are his own. He's jealous of mankind. He created him. He's purchased a redemption for him and made it possible for him to be saved. And God is jealous. It's not his will that any should perish. He wants them to be saved. He's jealous of them. But when they don't turn to him, he's going to judge them. And the thing this book makes clear as we'll go through it, God is glorified in judging as well as God is glorified in saving. Now, a great many people don't see that at all. They can't understand how that could possibly be true. But you remember over in the 38th and 39th chapters of Ezekiel, that is the time that God is going to judge Russia in the future. And he says that it will be in the last days, the latter days. And in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, verse 16, it reads like this, "...thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes." In other words, God says, I intend to judge this godless system, this godless nation, and when I do, I will be glorified in that judgment. Now, that is a tremendous statement to make. And also, for a great many people, it's a better pill for them to follow. But it might be well for us to learn to think God's thoughts after him, realizing that our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways at all. Now, let's just get our foot in the door of the book. I read verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Jedeliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, I want to say just this one word about the writer of this little book because it's pretty important for us to get acquainted with him and know him because he introduces himself. You see, Zephaniah identified himself better than any of the other minor prophets. Now, we have been looking at Habakkuk. Actually, Habakkuk concealed himself in silence. We know nothing about his background, but Zephaniah went to the opposite extreme and he told us more than's ordinary. He traced his lineage back to his great-great-grandfather who was Hezekiah, whom we know as Hezekiah, king of Judah. 
In other words, he was of the royal line. So he not only told us about himself and his lineage, but he tells us at the time that he wrote. And it was a dark day for the nation. According to the arrangement of the Hebrew Scriptures, Zephaniah was the last of the prophets before the captivity. He was contemporary with Jeremiah. And probably he could have been, I guess, with Micah, but I doubt that. His was the swan song of the Davidic kingdom. And he's credited with giving impetus to the revival during the reign of Josiah. And we're going to see in this little book, Sweetness and Light, that's ordinarily associated with love on every level, and I think rightly so, but this aspect actually does not exhaust the full import of love. Love expresses itself always for the good of the one who is loved, always. That's what real love is. Love is kind. This is the reason that it's difficult to associate love with the judgment of God. And so many people think of God as if he's a sort of a super Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. One nature of his is expressed by love, and the other nature is expressed in wrath by judgment. And these two appear to be contrary to the extent there seems to be actually two gods. Well, Zephaniah is filled with the wrath and judgment of God, but there is the undertone of the love of God. And that is the story we told you today, that dark side of love. Now he gives us his prophecy, verse 2. He says, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. Now in chapter 1, we have the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. Here he says, and this is certainly strong language, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. God says that I intend to judge, and when I do, I intend actually to scrape the land, just like a scraper, a dirt scraper had been run over it. Just as you wipe out a dish, God says, that's the way that I intend to judge them. Now he reinforces that statement in verse 3, and he says, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the land, saith the Lord. Now, this is quite a judgment, by the way. They have a zoo over in Israel today. I have not seen it. I was told when I was there that it was somewhere up around the Sea of Galilee, and there is an effort being made to gather the animals that were in existence in Bible days and put them in the zoo because, obviously, today, as the population increases, the same thing that will happen there has happened in our land. Certain species will become extinct, disappear. Well, God says that that's exactly what's going to happen when he judges that land. Many species, in fact, they'll all become extinct at that time. This is a very severe judgment, you see. Now, 
as we move on down here, we recognize that it actually, I think, covers more than just that land. It's worldwide devastation that's predicted here. And the book of Revelation confirms this and places the time as the great tribulation period. During that period, this earth will absolutely be denuded and the judgments that come upon it. Because you see, it is right before God brings in the millennial kingdom and renews the earth. Now, will you notice, he says here, I will consume man and beast. In other words, all living creatures are included in the judgment. Now, he's very specific. In verse 4, he says, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Shemarim with the priests, and those who worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and those who worship and who swear by the Lord and who swear by Malcham. Now, here, God makes it clear that Jerusalem is singled out, and so is Judah. And God says, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I'm going to cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. Now, the thing that brought the judgment of God upon the land is very specific. What we have is idolatry. Now, we saw in Habakkuk that God mentioned five woes that he was going to bring on the people because of certain sins that they committed. And idolatry was the last one. It was the fifth one, but there were four others. Now, Zephaniah narrows it down and puts his hand on idolatry, that is, false religion. In other words, he's carrying out what the Scripture teaches, beginning with the book of Judges. You have given a philosophy of human government. And you will find it was true of God's people, and it's been true of every nation. A nation starts to decline when there's first religious apostasy, when there's a turning from the living and true God. And then the second step downward is moral awfulness. And then the third step down is political anarchy. That's the last one. Now, a great many people think that the problem is in Washington. I don't think so. And then another group of people feel that the moral awfulness of this land, if people could be reformed and we could get people acting nice and not being violent, not stealing, and to lift our standards, that would be great. And that would solve our problem. I don't think that's the problem. Very frankly, the problem in this country, I believe, is a religious apostasy. I think that the problem is out yonder with you and right here with me. The problem today is that the church has failed to give God's message. Now, I'm talking 
Not about every church or your church, because I know most of you who listen to this program are in good Bible churches. And I thank God for the wonderful group of pastors across this country that are standing for God today. And there are many of them that are. But the great denominations, by and large, have now departed from the faith. They have gone to the place where they are no longer giving an effective message to the nation. And as a result, I think that from that has flowed moral awfulness and political anarchy today. Now, if you think that this is just the wild ravings of a fundamental preacher, you are wrong. I want to read to you an excerpt from an editorial that appeared in the Chicago Tribune of March the 20th, 1968, and it was speaking about the low level of the churches and that they actually were turning from a spiritual message altogether. And they were using the prominent spokesmen of the churches and of the seminaries, and the editorial concluded like this. I'm reading now. I'm quoting. This betrayal of Christ in the name of Christianity is one reason for the moral and spiritual malaise with which this country is afflicted. The melancholy fact is that the churches no longer influence the development of national character. People go to church mainly because of an impulse to participate in a service of worship, not because of any spiritual guidance they expect from the clergyman. Now, what a note of condemnation this is, friends, to read a thing like this. Now, this is not just our nation. It's been true of every nation. Gibbon gives five reasons for the decline and fall of Rome. Now, you must remember Gibbon was not a Christian, but here is why he said Rome fell, and Rome fell from within. He says, first, there was the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Second, higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Third, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, more immoral. Fourth, the building of great armaments, when the great enemy was within, the decay of individual responsibility. And fifth, the decay of religion, fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. That's an amazing statement, let me tell you. Now, this man, Zephaniah, puts his finger right down on the sore spot in the southern kingdom of Judah. He saw what was happening. They were now on the toboggan. They were on the way out, and judgment was coming. And he mentions here this thing of idolatry. And the idolatry, it's where every great nation has gone off the track. 
it has been when it has departed from the living and true God, or when it has given up, if it has had great moral principles that's been based on religion and departed from them and gone into an idolatry that's led to gross immorality. Now, the interesting thing about the idolatry that he mentions is that I personally think that you have here three types of idolatry that are mentioned. There was, first of all, the worship of Baal, actually a worship that was introduced into the northern kingdom by Jezebel because her father was the high priest of the worship up among the Sidonians. Now, God says he's going to remove the worship of Baal. Now, that had been introduced into the southern kingdom largely by Manasseh. Now, I'm not going to take time to turn back to the historical books in which all of this occurs. That's the reason that I said when we were in the historical books, it would be wonderful to take the prophetic books that fit in at particular periods. And this is the reason why. You need the background here of the reign of Manasseh. And no king ever departed from God as far as this man did and introduced the worship of Baal. Now, it actually was a very immoral form of worship because along with Baal... There was Ashtaroth. And when the female principle is introduced in deity, you have gross immorality. And that, of course, came in during this period. And when Josiah became king, and he was a good king, that was the first thing that he did was to try to remove the worship of Baal. Now, it was a form, therefore, of nature worship. Very crude, to tell the truth. Very crude indeed. And these shimmering, actually it means black priests, which means they wore black. Have you noticed that today the worship of Satan, these that are engaging in it, that they don a black garment? It's quite interesting. It's not original with them. It comes all the way down. And these idolatrous priests wore black robes. And this is what he's talking about here. And they are to be judged. Now, in verse 5, he mentions another form of idolatry that became prevalent in that land. And it was more subtle and more dangerous. It says, "...and those who worship the host of heaven upon the housetops." Now, the thing that is happening here you see, is something actually that's very dangerous indeed. The housetops back there are flat. That's even true today. And it is the place where the family gathers in the evening. In fact, God gave a law about putting a banister, a railing around the roof so no one would fall off because that's where the family would gather. Well, this became a place of worship. And you can see now what it's doing. It's moving into the homes and it actually meant that every home was a little heathen temple where idolatry was practiced. And believe me, friends, this was really reaching in. And it was a worship that they worshiped the creature rather than the Creator. They worshiped all the hosts of heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars. They're worshiping 
that which has been made, rather than worship the Creator. And this was the second form that they adopted. Now, the worst and the most sophisticated and the most subtle of all is the one that's mentioned here in verse 6. And those who are turned back from the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for Him. Now, the suggestion was made in verse 5, actually. And those who swear by the Lord and who swear by Malchem. And Malchem is the name for Moloch, the worship of the god of the Ammonites. And it was a worship in which they actually had living sacrifices. But it was very subtle indeed. Now, the subtlety of it was this, that at the same time they professed to worship the living and true God. They went to the temple. They said they knew the Lord, that they believed in God, and that they would go to the temple. But they also worshiped Moloch, and they were doing both. This is the subtle thing that is taking place today. There are many so-called churches that by the wildest stretch of the imagination could never be called a Christian church. You see, the church is built around a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And the church met together to worship and adore Him and to come to know Him and to have fellowship. And everything they did pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, how many churches today do you know where Christ is not even mentioned? And if He is mentioned... He's mentioned actually in a derogatory manner. In other words, they deny his deity. They deny that he's God. They do not worship him. They give a lip service. They talk about the teachings of Jesus and what a wonderful man he was and all that sort of thing. They even call him a superstar. But they deny everything that has been given to us as Christians. You see, it's a castrated Christianity that is abroad today. Now, that was the kind of subtle worship that was coming up in that land in that day. People were still going to the temple. They were going through the ritual. They were there, I guess, Sunday morning. I don't think they came any other time. They were there then. But they actually were worshiping Moloch. And Moloch is the god of the flesh. It is a fleshly worship, again, gross immorality. And so today, there are those that go to church. They have a churchianity, but not a Christianity. And they deny the great facts of the Christian faith. And they practice immorality. Or they practice things that are contrary to the Word of God. Now, friends, this is the picture that's given here. And that's the subtlety of the hour. A great many people think today that if a building's got a steeple on it and it's got a bell in that steeple and they've got an organ in the church and a big center aisle for weddings and that they have a pulpit down front and a choir loft, that that's a church. Well, my friend, that may be one of the worst spots in the town. It may be worse than any bar room in the town. 
It may be worse than any gambling establishment in the town. It actually could be worse than any brothel in town. That is the thing today that is so deceptive. It was the thing that undermined this nation. It was the fact that they pretended that they were serving the living and true God. But they were giving themselves over into this form of idolatry. Now, will you listen to what God has to say to them? He says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. And the word is hush. Hush. Don't talk out. Don't speak out. No protesting. You're in the presence of the living God. Again, may I say that there is a lack of reverence for God. This notion that Jesus is sort of a buddy and that God is the man upstairs and that we can be very flippant as we speak of him today. May I say to you, our God is a holy God, a God that, my friend, if you and I came in a billion miles of him, we would fall down on our faces before him because of who he is. He is the great God, the creator of the universe, and we are merely a little creature. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. Why? For the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, this is the first mention of the day of the Lord in this book. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bidden his guests. Now, the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, again... The day of the Lord is presented here primarily as the time of judgment. And if you want to fit it into God's program, it's the great tribulation period. This is the time that it begins. You and I are living in the day of Christ, the day of grace. Now, the day of the Lord will begin when the church leaves this earth. Then God begins to move and begins to move in judgment. Now, ahead of that day, which is still in the future, there have been times when it's been likened unto the day of the Lord. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar finally came and destroyed Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and plowed it under, if you please, and also that land he left it denuded. You go to that land today, there are no trees. Oh, I know Israel's planted out millions of trees, but they just haven't made even a dent in that land, those barren hills that you see everywhere. Well, at one time, they were all covered with trees and with vineyards. It was a land of milk and honey, but it's not that today, friends, because you have left over that which the enemy did. The Babylonians came, and then later on, Alexander the Great, as well as the media Persians ahead of him. And then after them, the Romans came. And enemy after enemy have come into that land. And as a result, there's been very few trees that have been left there. And the land is almost completely denuded today. A friend and I were riding across the Negev several years ago down by the Dead Sea, and we came by Beersheba and on up to Ashdod. And 
He said, I don't see how in the world that this land could ever have been called a land of milk and honey. Well, I said, it sure is hard to understand, isn't it? It's just barren as it can be. It's like a bald-headed man. Why? God makes it very clear that that's what he's going to do back here. And he did it, friends, and the evidence is there today. And that was, for those people, the day of the Lord. But that does not satisfy the prophecies, as this man makes it very clear, that the day of the Lord is that day that's yet in the future. And it will be consummated when Christ comes and establishes his kingdom here upon this earth. Now, with almost biting sarcasm here, he says, "...the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he's bidden his guests." And the guests are going to be the sacrifice, by the way. And the sacrifice is the judgment upon this nation. Now, will you notice what he says? "...and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I'll punish the princes and the king's children." And all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. The thought here is that the rulers have turned away from God. And all you have to do is go back and refer to the time that Zedekiah reigned. He was the last one of the kings. And this man saw actually his own children killed right before his eyes. And then his own eyes were put out. You say, that's harsh judgment. It surely is. But they had had the warning from God, you see. And this to them was like the day of the Lord. Now, will you notice what he says in verse 9? In the same day also will I punish all those who leap on the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Now, when he says they leap on the threshold, actually, it's a picture of when they would take over the land and the homes of the poor. And that was the thing that was happening in that day. In other words, the great middle class had disappeared, and you had the extreme rich and the extreme poor. And that's the thing, of course, that's happening, I think, in our land today. We're having certainly the extreme rich, and we have the extreme poor, the two great extremes. And that's what God says, I'm going to judge you for. Now, will you notice verse 10, and it shall come to pass in that day. Now, that clearly is a reference to the day of the Lord. Saith the Lord that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate. Now, the fish gate is what is known today as the Damascus Gate. It was the gate that they brought the fish down from the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan River. And that's the gate that's referred to here. It's on the north side. And it says, "...and a wailing from the second quarter, and a great crashing from the hills." Now, the Damascus Gate today is down in a rather low place. All the way, there'll be a wailing from the Damascus gate back up to the hills. And if you're acquainted with Jerusalem, you know it's surrounded by hills. So any direction you want to move, there would be this wailing of the people when the time of judgment has come upon them. And God says in verse 11 here, "'Wail, ye inhabitants of Maktesh.'" Now, Maktesh 
actually means mortar. And it was supposed to have been a depression in Jerusalem where the marketplace was situated. And I'm not sure but what it was maybe the Cheesemaker's Valley. It was the valley that went beside the temple. It's where the Wailing Wall is today. And that was a good place for it. God says, Wail ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. You see, it was the marketplace there. And it was down in that cheesemaker's valley. And that's where the Wailing Wall is today. Certainly in an appropriate place. Now, God says it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. In other words, like you take a flashlight today and go looking for an individual that was hiding in the dark. God says that I intend to search out Jerusalem just like that. And I'll bring to light all the evil and the sin and punish the men that are settled on their lees. And that, of course, is an idiomatic statement that corresponds, I think, to our idiom today where you hear someone say, take it easy. These people were taking it easy. They were in an affluent society then, and things were coming easy, and they were taking it easy. In other words, those that were in comfort, enjoying luxury, it was an affluent society there at that time. They never believed they would be judged any more than people today believe that we are to be judged as a nation and punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. What they're saying is this. Well, God's doing nothing. God's not going to do anything about it. Well, you remember that happened to be the question of Habakkuk. Why don't you do something, Lord? God says, I am doing something. And when Habakkuk was given a vision and saw what God was really doing. He cried out to God for mercy for the people. And today, a great many people think, well, God's doing nothing. Must not be a God. God is dead. It has been a theology of this day. And only our society could ever have produced that kind of a theology. Because people in an affluent society, we don't need God at all. And as a result, he doesn't do good. And he doesn't do evil. He doesn't do anything. But they're greatly mistaken. And that is the thing that he's going to make very clear to them. Now, verse 13, Therefore their goods shall become a booty, their houses a desolation. In other words, the goods that they took by absolutely plundering and pillaging and robbing are going to be taken away from them just the way that they got them, and their houses will become a desolation. In other words, there'll be ghost towns in Israel. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine of them. You see, God had a law given to these people that when a man planted a vineyard, he was not to go to war until he had eaten the fruit off of that vineyard. And that if a man married and he was to have time off and not to go to war. But here, what he's saying is this, that they are going to plant vineyards, but they're not going to drink the wine of them because they've sinned and they won't be able to take time off from warfare. 
and they won't be able to take time off when they get married because the enemy is going to come in like a flood. Now, in verse 14, he says, "...the great day of the Lord." Now, this great day of the Lord is the time of the great tribulation in the future. And these days that they were having at this time, and frankly, after Josiah ruled, there never arose in the southern kingdom a good king. Every one of them was bad. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Every one of them was a corrupt king. And now judgment is going to come upon the nation and come upon the people for their departure away from God. The great day of the Lord, that is near. But they are going to experience a very small portion of what is in the future. It's near and it hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. In other words, the wailing wall would come into existence. And it's going to be there, friends, until after the great tribulation period. Because Israel will never know peace until the Prince of Peace comes and they acknowledge their Messiah. Now, it's called the great day of the Lord. Now, the New Schofield Bible has put in a note here that verses 14 or 16 are the basis of the ancient Latin hymn, Dias Irae, the day of wrath. Well, I don't know why they put that in. I just think that they put that note in because they didn't have anything else to say in. They wanted us to know that they were on the job as they went through the Scripture, so they give us this note here. But I'm not musical, but that probably will mean something to some of you who listen in, the great day of wrath, the day of wrath that is coming upon the earth. And I did not know that there was a hymn that was called that. The great day of wrath is coming. He says in verse 15, that day is the day of wrath, the day of trouble and distress, a day of waste and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Actually, there's a play upon words here that Dr. Feinberg, in his excellent little book on the Minor Prophets, brings out that we miss it in English, of course. But you do have here an alliteration that reveals something of it. It's a day of trouble, and then he gives distress, desolation, darkness, and thick darkness so that there is a play even upon the words in the English. And by the way, in our notes, we've always attempted to recommend certain books that are written on the particular book in the Bible that we're studying. And I have Dr. Feinberg's books in my bookshelf. He had given me a whole set of them when I was pastoring downtown Los Angeles, but to put them out of place... That is, they weren't in where they belong. And actually, I did not get them in the notes till recently. And I want to say that I highly recommend them. He is an excellent scholar and calls our attention to many things that you and I would normally pass over. Now, let me say here that this man is speaking of the harshness and the intensity 
of the judgment that is coming. And the question naturally arises, how can a God of love do a thing like this? Well, we're going to see before we finish this book that it's like that father that took his little child to be operated on. He did it because he loved the child, and yet it can be presented in a way that it looked as if he was being cruel and harsh to the little girl by turning her over to a doctor that would plunge her knife into her. But the father did everything that he did. He did it in love of the little girl. Now, even the great day of wrath is a judgment from God, but it has in it the love of God. You see, regardless of what takes place, God is love. It's like that weather vane that we told you about, that Spurgeon saw the farmer had on his barn, and he had written on that weather vane, God is love. And Mr. Spurgeon said, you mean God's love is as variable as the weather? And he said, no, I don't mean that. I mean that regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. And that, my friend, is true. Even in judgment, God is still a God of love, and he judges because it is essential for him to judge that which is evil. He does that because he has to be true to himself, and he couldn't be good to his creatures unless he did that. If God's going to permit sin throughout eternity, and if God does not intend to judge it, and you and I have got to wrestle with disease and with heartbreak and with disappointment and with sorrow throughout eternity, may I say to you, I can't conceive that he's a God of love. But if you tell me that God is going to judge sin and that he's coming in with a mighty judgment and he's going to remove it from his universe, I'm going to say hallelujah. And I believe that he's God of love even when he does that. Now again, let me begin reading at verse 16. It's a day of the trumpet, an alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. It is here, he says, a day of the trumpet. Now, when God gave to the nation Israel the trumpets that they were to blow on the wilderness march, they were to be used in other ways. For instance, when you blow an alarm, he says. In other words, that an alarm was sounded when the enemy came upon them. And in verse 9 of chapter 10 of Numbers, having mentioned the different ways the two silver trumpets were to be used, he says, And if ye go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Now here, it's the day of the trumpet. They're going to blow the alarm. But God doesn't intend to deliver them. Why? He intends to judge them. He intends to deliver them over to the enemy, not deliver them from the enemy. And so it's a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Now God says in verse 17, "...and I will bring distress upon man, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord." and their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like the dung. Now, that's extreme. I grant you it's extreme. 
But, you know, surgery today is that way. When my doctor operated on me the first time for cancer, he told me afterward. I was asking him about the operation, and he said, well, you know, he says, I kept cutting away as much as I could, and he says, I wasn't sure that after I'd cut so much away, which pile was you? And I had to stop. Well, may I say to you, that's a pretty harsh thing to cut on a fellow like that. But he didn't do it because he was angry with me. He didn't do it even for judgment. He did it actually to save my life. And I think that he did by using that method. And God used it too, by the way. And I think God approved of that method. May I say to you, God will judge, but he does it in an extreme way. He uses extreme surgery, but he does it for the sake of the body politic. Now, he says, verse 18, "...neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath." It's been quite interesting for this nation in which we live. We have spent billions of dollars throughout the world trying to buy friends trying to make friends and influence people. And I want to tell you, we are hated throughout the world today. And we are not loved. You can't buy love with silver and gold. You can't win people over with that. But we still believe that in this country, that money solves all the ills of this life. That money is the answer to all the problems God says when he begins to judge, silver and gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Now, God removed them from the land. Why did he do that? He did that because he actually loved them, friends. You see, if he hadn't done that, succeeding generations would have had to be exterminated totally. All of them would have had to been slain. For the sake of future generations, God had to move in and cut away the cancer that was destroying the nation. That's the picture that we have. 